Welcome to Share Public Health, the Midwestern Public Health Training Center's podcast connecting you to public health topics, issues, and colleagues throughout our region and the country, highlighting that we all share in public health. Thank you for tuning in to this 10-part series on health equity. Over the course of this series, we will discuss a broad range of topics connected to health equity. For additional resources and information, be sure to check the podcast notes or visit mphtc.org slash health equity. Welcome to the introductory episode of this series centered on health equity. My name is Hannah Schultz, and I am your host today. I work for the Midwestern Public Health Training Center, housed at the University of Iowa College of Public Health, and I am very excited to welcome our three guests today. Dr. Rima Avivi is a professor and chair of the Department of Community and Behavioral Health at the University of Iowa College of Public Health. Through her work, Dr. Afifi works to promote social, community, and policy environments conducive to well-being. She is specifically interested in intervention and implementation science, working to encourage bridges between research and practice. Dr. Afifi is one of the faculty leads of the Health Equity Advancement Lab, known as HEAL, at the University of Iowa College of Public Health and has been immeasurably helpful in putting together this whole series. Dr. Afifi, thanks for joining us today. Uh, Thanks for having me. I'm very excited about being part of this um, series. Our next guest with us today is Dr. Maria Bruno. Dr. Bruno is the Executive Director for Belonging and Inclusion and Assistant to the Vice President of Student Life at the University of Iowa. Dr. Bruno is a clinical psychologist and has worked with a broad range of populations. Dr. Bruno's areas of expertise include trauma, training and supervision, and multicultural principles. In her time at the University of Iowa, she has advocated for a more equitable, inclusive environment and infuses her work with an understanding of belonging as a basis for health. Dr. Bruno, thanks for coming over and joining the public health world for a little while this morning and contributing to this episode. Hello, thank you so much for inviting me. I feel so honored. And finally today, we have Dr. Paul Gilbert. Dr. Gilbert is an assistant professor at the University of Iowa College of Public Health. Dr. Gilbert focuses his work on alcohol use disorders, particularly in the ways that gender, race, ethnicity, and sexual orientation shape drinking patterns, risk of alcohol use disorders, and use of treatment services. He also does work with Latino communities and non-traditional settlement states through participatory action-oriented research. Along with Dr. Afifi, Dr. Gilbert is one of the faculty leads at the Health Equity Advancement Lab at the College of Public Health. He is also chair of the college's Diversity, Equity, and Inclusion Committee, and you'll be hearing from him as host in a couple of the episodes later in this series. Dr. Gilbert, thanks for joining us, and thanks for your work hosting a couple of the other episodes. Thank you. I'm really excited about this series and uh, glad to be a part of it. Thanks for thinking of me. So I'm going to start our conversation by reading uh, the CDC definition of health equity. Health equity is achieved when every person has the opportunity to attain his or her full potential, and no one is disadvantaged from achieving this potential because of social position or other socially determined circumstances. Health inequities are reflected in differences in length of life, quality of life, rates of disease, disability, and death, severity of disease, and access to treatment. So in this podcast series of 10 parts, we're going to be talking about many different uh, areas of health equity and health inequity. So today I want our conversation to focus on exactly what health equity is and how it plays out. So 
To get started, do any of you have reactions to that CDC definition or um, thoughts as we get started with this conversation? Um, I can go ahead and get started. Um, I, I actually like that definition a lot, and I particularly like the emphasis on um, allowing people to achieve their full potential. Um, I think whenever any of us in society doesn't have that opportunity to achieve their full potential, then then all society, all of us lose, all of society loses. And so I, I do think it's important to create environments that are conducive to uplifting um, everybody's potential um, to achieve um, their well-being and health. I agree. I, I really like the CDC's definition. It, it has the central idea that's important that we want to maximize opportunities for good health. Um, but I always feel like it needs a bit of a follow-up because it there's a risk of thinking that it's just convincing folks to make healthy choices. Um, and it's not at all about that. That is a, a portion of health, but when we focus on health equity, it's more about the context and the structures and the larger things, especially things that are not under any individual's direct control that we want to... Um, yeah, create the the opportunities for good good health. So I, always, I like it, but I always feel like it needs a little bit more of a follow-up uh, explanation or, or going a little deeper. And on next week's episode, we'll be talking about the social determinants of health, which we'll get more into uh, yes. what some of those other non-behavioral things are that influence health. Exactly, yeah. My thoughts and reactions to the definition are similar. Um, I like it. While I also believe that we have to be cautious whenever we are trying to utilize definitions, um, I think what's missing for me is really highlighting the values um, that will guide us to change behavior. I like that a lot, too. And, and oftentimes in classes, I'll emphasize to students that you know, our focus on equity or correcting inequities is driven by our values, by our ethics. Like we have a moral obligation to correct situations and health disparities, the, the differences that we see are the end result of this whole chain of things that happen. But it really starts with our, our commitment to the value. So thank you for that. So health equity is kind of a buzzword right now. Everyone's talking about it. Everyone thinks it's important, but sometimes we kind of stop there. So can you all talk about the like what is health equity? What's the difference between equity and equality or inequity and inequality? Uh, and how do all those play out in conversations about health and in the prep public health practice? Well, I think one of the easiest, well, maybe I don't know if it's easy. <laughs> Anything about this is easy, I should say. One of my starting points is to differentiate always. Uh, it's not just an inequality. It's not just that there is a difference, but there's more going on behind the scenes. There's something about systematically privileging or disadvantaging different groups, different social groups, different identities um, that have, say, historical roots or structural components, things that, as I said before, are not under any individual's direct control, but that influence everything about their life and their health outcomes. Uh, the other thing I, I'll often tell students is, you know, our goal is equity, that everybody has the opportunity to maximize their health, but it doesn't necessarily mean that everyone's going to have the exact same outcome, that there's always going to be variation. Folks will even make poor choices. Um, 
and that's that's just part of life. But what we want to do is maybe pay attention to the range of differences, bringing the top and the bottom closer together, the well and the unwell closer together, or correcting the all those structures and systems and histories that lead to these differences. Um, just that maybe that's more the the nuance that I think of. I can jump off from there. Um... And just to follow up, I think, a little bit on, on um, what Paul was saying. So our health and well-being is determined by many, many, many factors. Um, biology is one of those factors. But other factors include, we've talked a little bit about behavior, um, social and structural and physical environments affect our health, uh, policies affect our health, and really, and healthcare, of course, affects our health. And what we know is very little of our health status, our health outcomes as a society, as a community, as individuals is actually determined by biology. Um, most of it is determined by all those other factors. And so when I think about inequalities and inequities, inequalities may be things that are not unjust and unfair because they are biologically driven. So if we take, for example, breast cancer, females will always have more breast cancer than males. That isn't an inequity. It's an inequality. It's a difference between um, you know, two groups of people based on biology. But then if you look, but anything else that's not biological and is an inequity and is something that's worth, um, that's unjust, unfair, and worth, think, worth thinking about in terms of how do we change the conditions that created that. So if, if then you just focus on female breast cancer, if, if the rates of female breast cancer were just biological, then we should, say, we should see the same rates of breast cancer in females across all um, demographics, across all countries, across all, and that is not what we see. So we see big differences in breast cancer in females depending on a whole variety of sociodemographics and a whole variety of other things, which then makes it an inequity because it isn't related to biology but related to social and physical environments, to healthcare access, to policies, et cetera. You know, uh, you just mentioned the proportion of health that could be attributed to things like biology and social factors and such. There's a paper that I often like to cite. Uh, Alvin Tarlov published a, I guess it maybe it's sort of a commentary or a summary review paper in 2006, and maybe we can include the link in the, the show notes, um, that showed that all of genes and biology and access to healthcare and individual health behaviors account for less than half of the variance in health outcomes. So the social environment, the social context accounts for at least half, a little more than, than half. And those are things that we rarely think about when we think about health. Um, so that's always a good, good reminder. Thank you. Some of the research that I found um, specifically from the Robert Wood Johnson Foundation um, was really helpful to me because I'm not a content expert. Mm -hmm. um, and so I just wanted to, first of all, share that. But the way they understand inequity or health inequity is uh, that it refers to unfair, avoidable differences arising from poor governance, corruption, or cultural exclusion, which I found to be really enlightening for me. Um, and then inequity for them, they refer to inequity as uneven distribution of health or health resources as a result of genetic or other factors or the lack of resources. So going back to your point about the biology, I really think that we often forget about that. We don't all have the exact um, same DNA in our bodies metabolize things very differently. And so we often forget about other factors outside of, you know, our regular um, 
considerations. And then in regards to disparity, um, they also identified that as the difference in health and health care between population groups. And as I sit here and I think about, um, so I identify as a Latina woman, and members in my community don't always have access to health care. And so because they don't have access to health care or um, don't have access to medication, we often have a tendency to utilize emergency rooms and things of that nature. And so we're already at a disadvantage. Yeah. Yeah. I think you all highlighted some really important things here, which um, will come up in later episodes as well, but particularly looking at um, health behaviors and how health behaviors aren't always um, the most important predictor of health outcomes. Uh, in last week's episode of Share Public Health, we heard from Dr. Brian Castrucci from the DeBeaumont Foundation. At one point in Brian's interview, he talks about how so much of our environment is advertising and um, who we spend time with in our social environment that we aren't always, even when we think we are making decisions for ourselves, so much of it is from what's around us. So it might be a health behavior, but it doesn't mean it was a health choice. And that can vary greatly depending on who your family is, who your community is, who you are living with and around. I think Paul started us off really well on this, but the I think we do need to talk about behaviors because I think that people always focus in on behaviors and um sort of blame people for their behaviors. And I think we'll get to blaming later in the episode, but um, behaviors are also socially patterned, as you've suggested. And uh, behaviors are not volitional, so or not completely volitional. Uh, so a lot of people think that behaviors are completely in our control. But again, if you look across, um, across sociodemographic groups or across countries, if behaviors were completely in our control, then, be, then they should be the same across um, all these categories of, of um, individuals or across all these zip codes or all these countries. And we don't see that. So, I mean, if you take um, substance use, for example, tobacco uh, smoking, if it were completely volitional behavior related to what I know um, and my biology, then rates of tobacco use across the world and among, across communities should be exactly the same. That's tobacco use as a behavior. But in fact, we see very different rates of tobacco use according to um, you know, policies, according to um, social, uh, to marketing, according to um, you know, a lot of other social environmental factors. And so there is, there is um, almost a risk that uh, when we focus too much on, on behavior, we actually victim blame. And I think that's an important thing to bring out in this sort of thinking about health equity. So sorry to take us on a tangent, but I think it's an important thing to bring out. Yeah, and I agree. A lot of times we don't pay attention to the context that behaviors happen in that, you know, for smoking, as an example, your neighborhood could be targeted with pro-tobacco advertising. Um, you might not have any other stores in your neighborhood except the corner store or the gas station where tobacco products are available. Um, you may be working a job where the only time you can get a break from your work is a smoking break. Um you know, the context shapes the behavior to a tremendous extent that we don't always recognize. Yeah, thank you for bringing that back. I think uh, we can look at any number of health behaviors and point to how, um, how it's so much more about our built environment and social environment than the decisions we're making. Um, this training center and um, previous years has focused a lot on diabetes, which is another really good example yeah. of 
health behaviors that lead to health outcomes, but it might not necessarily all be about those behaviors and it's not about making bad choices that leads to those behaviors. So I think that kind of ties into another thing that's often linked to health equity is social justice. So what do you all see as that connection between health equity and social justice is working toward health equity, um, working for social justice? Are they one in the same or how, how do those two kind of themes or practices work together? Well, I think it's the same. You know, working for health equity is working for social justice. Yeah, I just see it as the same. I have a very strong reaction to that. I do think that it is extremely important. And the reason I say that is as a clinical psychologist, unfortunately, I hear the numerous amounts of stories specifically from underrepresented um, populations when they're in systems that really do not are not created for them to thrive. And unfortunately, their health deteriorates. So they go from being brilliant, energetic, full of life individuals to individuals who have actually um, maybe had an early onset of schizophrenia because of the environment. And so I do think um, they are together and they're not separate. And, you know, I think that's a great example of, again, this notion of equity, like not having the, the same quality of care or being at a disadvantage. You may have access to care, but that's not the end of the story. It's, you know, the quality of care you're receiving and, uh, yeah. So, I mean, I think for me, um, they are also very much linked. And I think when we started off the, dis the definition of inequities, we did focus on the fact that many of these, both disparities and inequities are, um, occur in, uh, in communities or populations that are, that have been marginalized and disadvantaged uh, as a result of s historical oppression. And so the minute that you, you use that as a definition for health equity, you're in the social justice realm automatically. Um, so um, social injustice is related to historical oppression, historical and continued oppression. Um, and to, to, remove, to remove inequities automatically means to remove injustice. So you bring up an interesting point there, and I think a lot of people, especially in um, rural areas, so our training center covers Missouri, Iowa, Nebraska, and Kansas, so four very rural states. And in a lot of rural areas, there's not a whole lot of diversity. There's not much racial diversity or socioeconomic diversity, um, with some important exceptions to that. But why do people who are living in um, in communities that don't see much diversity, why why is it important for them to consider equity, and how is equity or inequity at play in those communities? Well, I would counter and and say there is diversity everywhere around us. It may not be dimensions that we always think about, like socioeconomic diversity. That absolutely happens, you know. In, in rural and urban areas. There's rural-urban differences in, you know, your context and the facilities you have available, the services, the quality of education and healthcare and so on. And as you noted, we oftentimes in this country think about racial ethnic diversity first. And, you know, that may be different. Even, even rural Midwestern areas are diversifying rapidly uh, in terms of race ethnicity. So it's, it's there. Um, it's just, Maybe it's a, a, a muscle that we have to exercise to practice looking for the dimensions of diversity that is there. 
And, you know, my rationale for it always is that equity is good for everybody. You know, even if I'm in the top position as a white male, um, ensuring that there's equity around me in my community lifts all of us up. It's good for all of us. Um, so I think that's that's something to maybe a good starting point for folks that aren't used to looking for it or maybe aren't aware of the different dimensions of inequities and historical injustices. Um, yeah. So when I think about this, I like to, to use um, to use a, an approach that's that the um, Racial Equity Institute brings about, and they use an approach called the groundwater approach. And I'll explain it a little bit because I think for me it really makes this issue of why equity is important clearer for everybody. So the groundwater approach sort of goes like this. Um, you have a home and um, you have a pond. And you come out of your home one day and um, you look in your pond and there's one fish that's dead. And so at that point, you're asking questions about why the fish is dead. But mostly it's questions about the fish. Like there must have been something wrong with the fish. Uh, the fish did something wrong. You know, all those things that we talked about before in terms of behavior. Um, and you sort of let it go. It's one fish. It's fine. Uh, it's gone. Um, the next morning you get up and you go out in, you, in your pond and you see half of your fish are dead. Um, you're going to start to ask very different questions. And those questions are going to start to revolve around the water that's in your pond. And so we're starting to get there, right? About then it's social and physical environments, or at this point, physical environments. The third day you get up and you start talking to your neighbors and you realize that it's not only half the fish in your pond that are dead, but half the fish in every pond in your neighborhood that are dead. And then again, you're starting to ask very different questions, not only about the water, but about what is common between you and your neighbors, and that becomes the groundwater. And if it's in the groundwater, then it affects us all. Whether or not we have a pond and fish or not, we're still drinking from that groundwater. And what we know about um, inequities is, and the way that we approach it, um, is it is it is a lot about that groundwater that we are seeing, um, that we are seeing unequal opportunity and uh, unequal potential across a whole variety of sectors, across the education sector, across the health sector, across the housing sector, across the finance sector. So really, it is something that is in, in our groundwater, and it will affect us all. Um, Rural areas, if you look at rural areas and the health issues in rural areas, you often see huge disparities between urban areas and, and rural areas, sometimes worse than urban areas, often worse than rural areas. So rural areas also have a significant amount of inequity um, that's related to the structures and policies and approaches that we all, um, that we all are promoting. I don't know if promoting is the right word that we all are living with, I guess, or that are a fact in our in our in our communities. I love that example. I'm familiar with it as well. Um, and I, I really appreciate it because I think it stretches us to think about other factors versus just the one person, right? We have a tendency to blame someone. Um, and we see that all across any kind of difficulties. One of the things that I um would also like to add to everything that has been shared is regardless of the specific demographics, also considering access to resources and what is available for folks, right? So there are certain areas that would have high tech um, 
machinery or medical equipment or whatever the case may be, or even just like clinical psychologists, right, or social workers that are available to them in a lot of rural areas. That's actually one of the areas where we don't have enough mental health providers for folks. So there is, even though there is a homogeneous community, they might not have the same access to the resources to help them be able to thrive. You know, that's to jump off your your point. I think about that oftentimes in terms of uh, alcohol treatment services, that if you're living in a, a small town somewhere, you may not have treatment accessible to you. You may require an hour's drive. Depending on where you work, especially if you're in agriculture, there are times of the year you can't get away for an hour's drive, you know, to therapy. Um, so the second part of that too is, well, okay, maybe we can uh, have technological situations. There's a lot of interest now in telehealth for rural medicine, and that's great. And there are services available online, uh, you know, recovery support groups. Uh, but then you get into the question of the infrastructure. Do you have sufficient, you know, internet capacity in your rural area? I mean, that is a real barrier that we have not resolved in a lot of places. So that, that might be an example of inequities in terms of your geographical location and how we just don't put resources in rural areas. I did want to also just um, sort of come back to this idea of why it's important for everybody. Um, I think there's, a, there's many things that we could say about this, but I mean, evidence, of course, shows if you just take sort of income um, inequality, we know that countries that have uh, lower GDP have much worse health outcomes than countries that have higher GDP. But even within countries, uh, you can see that, that gradient. And evidence also so shows that the, the, the bigger the difference between the highest earner and the lowest earner, the much worse the health outcomes are for everybody in that country. So if you take the United States, uh, among all the other um, Organization for Economic Cooperation and Development countries, so all sort of countries that are middle to high income, um, the United States spends almost the most on healthcare, if not the most, but its outcomes are towards the bottom of all those countries because the income inequality within the United States is huge. Um, and so if you think about, just to give an example, the expected age of death for women at the lowest 1% of income distribution in the United States is 78.8. For women at the top 1% of income distribution, the expected age of death is 88.9. There's like 10 years difference for women. And for men, it's even worse. So for men in the lowest 1% of income distribution, their expected age of death is 72.7. And at the top 1%, it's 87.3. So 15 years of difference um, between those that are earning the least and those that are earning um, the most. It's important to think about these um, differences. And those are clearly not biology. Thank you for, for those responses. I did want to flag a couple of things that came up. Dr. Gilbert, a few minutes ago, you mentioned diversifying communities. Uh, later on in the series, we're going to have a whole series on immigration and talk about what some of those new destinations are in Iowa and um, some of those communities in Iowa and in our region that have um, long been destinations for immigrants. Um, and the whole idea of place matters and location matters as a um, huge determinant for health will be the topic of an episode in a few weeks as well. So we'll come back to a lot of these conversations throughout the next nine weeks. So thank you for starting to introduce some of these topics. I want to shift gears just a little bit. So 
So in the next several weeks, we're going to be talking about things from race to disability to sexuality to location. And some of these topics are really uncomfortable for people. Um, I know frequently I get into conversations about race and people get a little anxious that they don't want to come off as racist. So it kind of stops any way to move forward with that conversation. So why is it so important that we have these conversations and how can we make progress uh, on any of these topics um, with, with people who may be a little more hesitant to fully involve themselves and engage in these kinds of conversations? Well, I think there's a, always a discomfort because these are big issues that can be challenging. Um, trying to understand the historical context, the scope of things, especially when they're out of your control. You know, who likes to try and grapple with something that you don't have direct control over? Um, that's just hard. Um, but specifically, since you mentioned race, I think a lot of times people are reluctant because they just don't know how to talk about it and they haven't had the practice. So my response is, well, we have to face things. We have to face facts. Uh, maybe putting on my scientist hat, like let's just deal with things as they are. Um, and we just have to practice. We also have to realize that, especially for white folks talking about race, that is not the same as talking about racism. You can talk about being white, the experience of being white, uh, and contrast that to other people's experience. Uh, and that is different from, from, say, you know, reinforcing the racist hierarchy or white supremacy. Um, that's a totally different thing. But to acknowledge that, yeah, there are differences. And you know, you happen to fall into, say, the dominant group or all the stories are about you and your experience and, um, you know, you're at the center of every everything. Um, it takes practice um, and we'll get there, but but we do have to be intentional about that. And I guess my, my, yeah, I keep coming back to like talking about being white is not the same as talking about being racist. Um, but oftentimes, because we haven't had practice, we get that confused. I so appreciate my training as a clinical psychologist. I think um, it has really helped me develop sophisticated empathic skills for humans. I identify as a humanistic clinician. And so what I mean by that is that I really firmly believe that people are genuinely good people. Um, and so I would encourage us to really begin with recognizing where you are at individually, gaining your own self-awareness, um, learning to recognize your own biases. There's so many resources available to folks um, that if you felt uncomfortable, you can do a lot of training online. And so I would encourage folks to do that, and we can provide some links if people are interested. Um, I also believe that everybody has areas of their lives where they have privilege and areas of their lives where they have non-privilege. We must obtain knowledge to increase our own ability to understand others. And so I would really encourage folks to demonstrate cultural humility. And so if you don't know something, it's okay to say, I don't know. Um, and hopefully the people that you're conversing or interacting with will also be generous with you. And if they're not and they have any kind of reaction, I would also encourage us to sit with our own discomfort of what, what is going on in the moment, just to be present um, and to be with people and to demonstrate empathy. I really appreciate both those um, responses because I, I do think um, that it, that's exactly how we need to be thinking about these issues. Um, the other thing I think that's been helpful for me is, again, to go back to sort of that groundwater approach, is when we understand the groundwater approach, 
then we also understand um, the issue of unintentionality or implicit bias. I mean, this is water, so to speak, that we've all been drinking, and we may not have seen an, it another way. Uh, and so if we are, we, we are all prone to potentially saying things or doing things that are, that are hurtful to other people. Um, and sort of acknowledging that that is not, for, for most people, it is not intentional, I think is an important thing. Um, and it does open the space for all of us to grow and learn intentionally together um, in this process. It's, it's a difficult, it's, it's dif these, this is difficult work and it's work that is, that needs to be continuous. It's not work that we can do today and then forget about and come back to in six months. Um, if we really want to change these conditions, it's, um, it's a value as we've already stated. It's, um, a commitment to hard work altogether, uh, to sitting around the table and being willing to be uncomfortable. And in fact, I think if we're not uncomfortable, uh, we're not doing the work. Thank you. Um, a couple of things came to mind when following that values conversation. One of the things that uh, I've been thinking about in my work recently and in the work that we're doing as a center is that we spend a lot of time talking about health equity and creating health equity training and doing all of these things. And I think it's one of those things that it's either all or nothing. So we consider health equity in everything we do or we consider health equity in nothing we do. Because if it's one of those values that's gonna drive our work, your values have to be present at all times. They're not something that's only there when it's convenient or when you have the time to think about it or when whatever health department calls and asks you, it has to be part of everything that we do all the time. Um, something that I was thinking of uh, Dr. Gilbert, when you were talking was, uh, I grew up in a very small white community in Iowa. And I remember in third or fourth grade, we started uh, studying the 1960s and human rights in the 1960s. And I was obsessed. I read everything I could. I self-assigned myself tons of reports. Um, I was like writing all the time about this. And I was like, isn't it so great that they took care of that all those years ago and now everything's solved and we don't have racism anymore? And obviously as I grew up, I realized that wasn't <laughs> quite the case, but um, I think it, it did take me quite a while to realize that that was one part of the struggle and racism is still very, very much present. Um, I came to college and the University of Iowa is much more diverse than the community I grew up in. And interacting with some of those um, classmates and roommates that I had, I was like, wait a minute, I thought we solved this. Why is this still a thing? So I, th I think it's important for those of us who maybe don't interact with people who have different experiences than us and who uh, maybe aren't thinking about these things at, at all times to recognize that other people do have different experiences and we can't center everything we do on our experience or else we are unintentionally um, leaving out those other, those other people, those other histories as we're um, making policies or doing our, our own practice. Just to sort of go off that. I think um, at one point what we tried to do is sort of ask everybody uh, to think about a situation when they felt excluded. And I think 
there isn't anybody that hasn't felt excluded, or there's very few people, I would say, um, that have never felt excluded. And often in those conversations, um, they felt excluded because people were trying to put them in a particular um, box uh, of one identity when they felt they had multiple identities. And I think that gives us a little bit of a clue as to how these processes start happening, that all of us have multiple identities. And I think we already uh, alluded to that. We all have multiple identities. And when we try to box a person or a group or a community into one specific identity, I think that helps us to understand the process of exclusion. So sort of bringing it back and thinking about when it happened to us, um, I think may help us also understand. It's part of that empathy as well. It may help us understand the, the experience of other people. Um, the other thing I wanted to say is I think, um, and somebody once said this to me, I think it was during a training by the Racial Equity Institute, actually, um, when uh, they said, you know, we all go home at night and we think, okay, what are the great things that we've done? And we sit around the dining room table and share those things, the good things that happened that day. But if we start to ask ourselves, what have I done today that has oppressed, potentially oppressed other people? What have I done today that has potentially excluded other people? What have I done today to potentially limit opportunity? Um, all of us do that, uh, again, usually unintentionally, because we are part of systems and structures that are racist and sexist and ableist and all those other things. And to start to really think about um, how we do that. So for us, as we're thinking about um, enrolling students uh, in, our, in our master's of public health program, and we start to think, well, what are those rules that we put that either get people into the program or out of the program? And how are those rules um, oppressive? And how can we change those rules to make opportunity equal for everybody? Um, so to, to sort of flip the question from, um, you know, what are we doing good to what can we do better, perhaps? Thank you. So I've heard you um, a couple of times talk about an exercise you've done with groups, uh, a sort of gallery walk. And I think that's a really cool idea for empathy building. Could you talk just a little bit about what that is and how it's played out in different settings? Um, sure. Um, so a gallery walk is um, a wall or a wall of pictures, basically, or a wall of statements. Um, and the statements are usually related to um, what people have said to others in a microaggressive way. So a microaggression is, shoot, I don't have a definition right now. Usually like the small casual daily insults, not the, you know, you so-and-so something, you know, really bigoted, but um, not remembering your name, mistaking you for a server rather than a professor or uh, yeah, the casual, everyday, death by a thousand cuts. Assuming that you, if you're a woman, you have children or are married or, you know, making judgments about um, a sexual orientation or race or ethnicity, all those things um, can be microaggressive. And so a gallery walk is people having shared things that have been said to them um, that are microaggressive. And sometimes they put their names on that, and sometimes they actually, you know, hold up a sign and, and they ident self-identify as somebody who that microaggression was um, aimed at, and sometimes it's just the statement. And others can then sort of walk around and um, read those things and realize that actually um, these are things that are often said. Um, and so when we did this exercise, we had the, that gallery walk, and the person who was facilitating asked three questions. The first question was, 
how many of you had had have had something like this said to you? And everybody raised their hand. The second question was, how many of you have said something like this to somebody else? And everybody raised their hands. And I think what's really important about that is, again, it gets back to this idea of a groundwater that that we will say things often unintentionally that can be very hurtful to other people unless we intentionally stop and think and engage in difficult conversations and have cultural humility. The third one was asking um, whether there were any of the statements at that time that people didn't recognize as a microaggression. And um, the one that came up the most, and there's going to be, I think, a series on this podcast that talks about ability and disability, was a statement that said, um, this movie was lame. And that was the one that people had the most difficulty connecting to a microaggression. And I think that really shows that our vocabulary, the words that we use are just, we use them without thinking about the meaning of, of what we're saying. Um, yeah, anyway, I think that's a, a, a potentially powerful activity or exercise. It must be followed then by you know, some work around, okay, how do we start to break this down? Perfect. Thank you. So Dr. Afifi, Dr. Gilbert, and Dr. Bruno, thank you so much for joining us today. I do have one final question, but I wanted to ask if there's anything you'd like to add to the conversation before we start to wrap up. I would just say it's a good thing that this is a podcast series because there's so much to dig into. <laughs> we could spend hours and days talking about all of the topics related to this. So. My comment was also along the same lines. I just want to encourage people to be patient with themselves. It can seem very overwhelming, but just picking one specific area to start um, just learning and increasing your knowledge, your skills, and your abilities to, to be different and to be with people. Yeah, thank you. I remember the first meeting we had talking about this series, we came up with a list of things to do. And um, decided it could probably be a two-year-long series. So we... Uh, yeah. Narrowed it down to 10 episodes. So keep in mind that it is a very, very incomplete uh, series, but we will be covering a range of topics over between now and mid-March. And uh, we have experts from across Iowa, throughout the Midwestern region, and even a couple of national guests. So uh, it's going to be a really good series, and I look forward to it all being released. So just to wrap up, today's conversation, I want you all to all pretend you have a magic wand or can predict the future. Uh, what do you want to see happen in this space? In the, You can choose next year, next 10 years. Um, what are your hopes and dreams for health, for health equity, for public health? Where should we be going? Wow, that's a big question. That's why it's the last question. <laughs> <laughs> I, I would gravitate, I think, something like the phrase that we toss around often, health in all policies, that everything that we do, every policy has a health implication, even if it's not explicitly about health, that I'd like to see some something like we all adopt this equity in all policies, equity in whatever we do, equity in our actions, that there's always some equity <clears throat> implication. And then we can bring that more to the forefront and, and think about that more in whatever capacity we're working in or whatever we're doing or wherever our communities are. I had the same thought. Um, and just to follow up on what Paul said, I think, I think one thing that we need to do is uh, we all get very excited about um, intervention, whether it's practice or policy or any intervention that we think is going to 
make a difference in people's lives. And we get so excited about them that often we don't consider all the various aspects of that potential intervention. So I think if we stop um, and think about every intervention from the perspective of all of these issues that we know um, may cause increased inequities, we should not be implementing any intervention that, that either keeps inequity the same or increases inequity. Every single intervention that we implement ought to be an intervention that decreases inequities at the, at, at the very least. And so I think that's sort of a, and there are, there are tools and strategies um, to do that. Health and all policies is one. Um, there are other sort of, uh, you know, ways like progress where you can think about, you know, it stands for like P is place, R is race, you know, and you can take them, um, A is age. You can take each of those and go, okay, is this policy gonna make it worse or better for these particular categories of potential inequities. So I think that's one thing. Um, the other thing is, I do think we need to, coming back to the value, it is about a commitment to a value. I mean, it's a commitment to a value of social justice and equity. Um, and that would be one place I hope that we all we all move to. Um, and then I think um, shifting from, we, we tend to do a lot of focusing on deficits and, instead of focusing on strengths. And if we can also start to shift our paradigm so that we're, we're searching for strengths in everybody as opposed to deficits, we're, strength, we're, we're searching for similarities as, as opposed to differences, we're uplifting as opposed to othering, I mean, they're, you know, so belonging rather than uh, excluding. If we can sort of just shift our paradigm every time we look at an issue, just turn it around. And one thing that I've been thinking about a lot, which seems like such a simple thing but is difficult, is can we create environments and interactions where dignity is uplifted? So that in every interaction, when we leave it, our dignity is preserved um, and uplifted. I think that's a good thing to shoot for. I appreciate what both of you have shared. Um, you said we could have anything happen. <laughs> Dream big. And so I would really like to see the University of Iowa be very intentional about removing all barriers so that all students, staff, and faculty can have their best life. And I know that's going to take a lot of time and energy, but collectively, we can get it done. Yeah. Well, that's a strong note to end on. So we're going we're gonna to wrap up. Thank you all for joining us. Tune in next week. Uh, Dr. Gilbert will be talking about the social determinants of health with Dr. Georges Benjamin from the American Public Health Association and Dr. Nalo Johnson, formerly of the Johnson County, Iowa Health Department, currently with the Iowa Department of Public Health. So thank you all. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for all the good work you all are doing. Thank you for joining us today. Special thanks to Rima Afifi, Ann Crotty, Alejandro Scoto, Paul Gilbert, Casey Ginn, Mike Honig, Kathleen May, Felicia Pieper, Melissa Richland, Hannah Schultz, and Lori Wachner. Theme music for Share Public Health is composed by Dave Hohen and Roger Heilman. Funding for this webinar is provided by the Health Resources and Services Administration. Please see the podcast notes for an evaluation and transcript.